Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, recipes, and today, well, some weird miscellaneous stuff. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still, less ukulele, at least until Denny gets off his butt and makes a new theme. I, yeah, I can, yeah, I can do something about that, man. More ukulele can't be bad, right? Depends if we're talking Geneva Convention or not. <laughs> So, on this episode, it's it's summertime. You know, looking around, we're getting ready to go to HomebrewCon next week, and by the time you hear this, it will actually be HomebrewCon time, and summertime to us means lots of parties. Woohoo! Now, lots of parties for homebrewers in particular means that you're going to have a lot of people who are going to see your beer for the first time and start to interact with you for the first time about beer, and everybody has... Well, those sort of beer stories that they know, that they like to break out to show, hey, look, I know something about beer. Now, a lot of those stories are stories. <laughs> They're myths. And what we're going to do is we're going to sit down and we're going to tackle some of the most popular myths that we know of. But first, before we get there, a message from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well... It's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring artisan malt house Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout, Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. episode uh, like we said today is going to be all about beer myths you know some of the fun stories that get told around about beers and beer history we're actually going to cover a couple of major topics including color uh, serving myths uh, lifestyle myths and then uh, my favorite some history myths i'm joined here today with my good friend and buddy denny hey denny hey yeah what's up why don't we get right into it why don't we start with some of those uh, uh color myths that are hanging out there okay 
one of the things that I think you'll hear people uh, say most frequently that is just not necessarily the case is that dark beers are thicker and stronger than lighter beers. Uh, you know, I, how many times have you heard people talk about how Guinness is like motor oil, uh, stuff like that? Uh, and that is just not necessarily the case. Uh, of course, Guinness does make a stronger, thicker beer with their foreign extra stout, but the Guinness that most people think of, the draft Guinness, the stuff that comes in the cans, is actually a very light-bodied beer that has a lower alcohol content than Budweiser does. Uh, it's just, I, I don't understand exactly how the idea that Guinness was a thick, heavy beer came about. And that's that's true of many beers. Uh, you take a look at your classic uh, German Dunkel or something like that. That is a relatively light-bodied relatively low alcohol beer that's dark. Now, of course, that's not always the case, but to say that universally a dark beer is going to be stronger and thicker than a light beer is just not not true. Uh, take a look, for instance, like at Sammy Schlaus, which is kind of a souped-up Hellas and uh, at one point was the strongest beer in the world, or even just your basic Belgian triple. Uh, you know, this is a beer that looks like it could be a German Pils, uh, has a f very light body, very dry because the Belgians like digestible beers, and it's a strong beer. So, Basically, color has nothing to do with the body or thickness of a beer necessarily. There. I used to hang out in bars all the time uh, back in the days when I was a heavy hanging out and drinking type. And I would sit there with friends before craft beer became really widely available. And I'd be the guy over in the corner pounding back pints of Guinness. And all my friends were sitting there going, oh my God, how can you do that? It's a meal in a glass and, and <laughs> it's so strong. And uh, I gained a reputation for being a stout drinker, pun intended. And, <laughs> and I'd never had the heart or really the desire to expose myself by telling them, yeah, this Guinness has less alcohol than that Bud Light. <laughs> I know, you know, it's like you're afraid to do that. My Irish ex-brother-in-law uh, was always so proud of himself for drinking 17 pints of Guinness at a sitting. And uh, I gave him a triple once and it put him under the table. Well, and I will also say we talked a little bit about Sammy Claus and Danny talked about it being a soup of pellets. Remember, there are two versions of Sammy Claus. There's the Sammy Claus Brune, which is the classic one that everybody knows. And then there's the Sammy Claus Hellas, which is the same strike, and the one I think is actually the better beer. Okay, your turn to bust spits. Along the same color lines, you know, one of the other challenges about summer is that even though it's becoming increasingly rare that you're going to find people who haven't had good beer, you will still find people who don't have good beer or think beer isn't for them. A lot of people like to go by color in order to introduce people. Because, after all, you have that other other piece that we just talked about where, you know, color is equal to strength. And we know that not to be true because, I mean, really, color is just termed like barley or roasted barley. So a lot of people will go, okay, I have to introduce you to good beer. So I will introduce you with my American Blonde, my wheat beer, my something pale and yellow that's inoffensive. And I will tell you right now, I firmly, firmly believe that is the wrong idea. It's the wrong approach. For one, if you have somebody who is a Pilsner drinker or an uh, American lager drinker like a Bud Light or a Budweiser, and you introduce them to an American Blonde because you're thinking, well, that looks similar to like what they're used to, 
they're going to hate it because it's full of all this different flavor and it doesn't match up to their expectations. It's kind of like when you go to take a sip of a Diet Coke and instead run into a Sprite. It, it, it throws your brain and it's not going to make you very happy. And for people who are not beer fans or typical beer fans, the American Blonde and the American Wheat Beer or any of those other sort of pale beers are generally going to run into the same line of beery type flavors that they don't necessarily like. Here's my take. Instead of trying to introduce them to beer via like a mediocre American Blonde, introduce them to beer through something that's a little bit malty, a little bit sweet, uh, like a good Bach, the best American Brown that you can find that's low in hops, or the ones that I've had the greatest success with, which seems horribly ironic, is Stout and Porter. Why Stout and Porter? People who do not like beery flavors tend to think of it as being that Pills malt and hops, right? That's what they object to. Stout and Porter not only carry some malty and some sweetness to it, but they also carry two flavors that most adult human beings, at least in the U.S., engage with every day. Coffee and chocolate. And those are two flavors that are very familiar and two flavors that a lot of people find very comforting. So I find, actually, if you can get your hands on a good stout or a good porter, not one that's overly acrid, not one that's overly hoppy, but one that's good, drinkable, and really rich with those chocolate and coffee flavors, you will have a much better success rate converting somebody over to good beer than I think you do if you give them a mediocre blonde. My argument is you usually want to go malty, you usually want to go sweet, and you usually want to go a stout and a porter if you're going to introduce somebody who's not used to beery, beery flavors, because I think those are the most approachable. And I think those are the ones that plug into the average human palate a lot more closely. And it's also a shock to the system. I, I, you know, I would be a little careful about overgeneralizing there. For instance, if you, if my wife wasn't already into beer, which she is, and you sat her down and gave her a malty stout or porter, you might, you might just ensure that she would never be into beer. Uh, I like to take the approach that Terry Ferendorf takes, which is to talk to a person about what kind of food they like and what their preferences are. That's a good way to get an idea of what their flavor preferences are like and uh, what they might like in a beer. I, I remember Terry, for instance, saying, and this is, this is back to your, your point, Terry talking about how uh, she sat down with a woman once and uh, someone was talking about how she loved chocolate. So rather than a stouter porter, specifically, Terry actually pulled out a chocolate porter and Apparently, the next time Terry saw this woman, she was in a bar ordering more adventurous beers by herself. The other thing that I've learned from giving brewery tours is that people who think they only like wine very often will just flip out in a good way over a barrel-aged sour beer. It doesn't taste like what they think of as a beer, and they can relate to the uh, the barrel notes on it. And uh, it, it's a really, really good way for people who say, oh, I only drink wine to get introduced to beer flavors. I would say avoid anything overly funky, because oh, I think, yeah. at least for American wine drinkers, they're much more about the fruit and the acid. Right. And not about things like Brett and other sort of barnyardy type characters. Right. Barn, barnyardy is not going to do it. But uh, for instance, uh, the one brewery that I do tours at, Oakshire here in Eugene, made a beer that was a barrel-aged beer, spontaneously fermented, that had just 
tons and tons of peaches in it. And every time I pour that beer for somebody who's a dedicated wine drinker, they always ask for seconds. So, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good gauge. So there you go, a couple of uh, color And, you know, I totally forgot. You know what? I think I know why Guinness is considered strong. Why? Because of the, the old ad campaigns that, uh, you know, Guinness is good for strength. That's got to be it. <laughs> yeah, right. Because it's so healthy for you, right? Yeah, there you go. Feed it to your nursing mothers and wounded soldiers. So that's <laughs> color. Let's go on to the serving and storage myths. Uh, Denny, you want to take the first one? Sure. Uh, I'm sure that you've all heard someone say that if your beer goes from cold to warm and back to cold through repeated cycles of that, it will skunk the beer. Nope, sorry. Skunking comes from uh, an interaction between certain wavelengths of light and certain compounds in the hops. That's why most beer comes in brown bottles, because brown bottles help to filter out those wavelengths and make it a little bit less susceptible to skunking. Now, repeated cycles of cold, warm, cold are not necessarily real great for beer, and they can accelerate the staling process, but they won't skunk the beer. Again, that is strictly a reaction between light and hops. Uh, as long as you don't store the beer too warm, you won't accelerate that staling process too much. So just make sure that uh, you can explain to your friends who think that temperature is related to skunking, that that's not exactly the way it works. And if they have skunk beer, they should be keeping it in a sealed box or in the fridge or somewhere away from light. I fully endorse the idea of, hey, you know, go and keep your beer nice and cold because I think cold uh, cold actually helps you keep a beer around for a lot longer. After all, there's all the stuff out there. Uh, you can hear uh, Dr. Bamforth talk about it. A certain number of degrees rise in storage temperature halves the shelf life of your beer. I would not worry about cold, warm, cold, warm in terms of affecting the quality of the beer. I would worry more about the warm storage aspect of affecting the beer. And along those same lines, let's talk about the myth of cold beer is the best beer because Boy, howdy. This one is, uh, I think, finally dying away, but I still go in occasionally to good beer places and ask for a beer, or even a lot of places nowadays that have good beer on tap and don't really have much of a clue, and ask for a nice pint of beer, and the next thing you know, I'm given a beer, like an IPA, poured into a frosted over glass. Probably worse off a frosted over shaker pint. I am not the kind of person who will sit there and uh, gribble gravel and complain to management. But if you serve me an IPA or something like that in a frozen glass, that will tend to make me go, no, no, I don't want this, and ask for a warmer glass and not fresh out of the dishwasher, but a warmer glass <laughs> because I want to be able to taste and smell things. Remember, as you know, if you're a good beer lover, that cold kills taste. Cold also slows down the evolution of aroma. Anything that's served at the American macro lager freezing cold temperature level, you're not going to be able to taste it. And that's perfectly fine for some of those beers. And there's perfectly fine for some situations. But if I want my IPA out there, I don't want to have it at that level of coldness where I can no longer taste anything. Cold is perfectly acceptable in, in some situations. Lawnmower beers are perfectly acceptable cold. Cream ales are perfectly acceptable cold. That bottle of Corona while you're sitting on a Mexican beach with your feet in the sand, perfectly acceptable ice cold. My IPAs, no, don't do it. And my Belgian beers, no, don't do it. It doesn't have to be warm. Just don't serve it to me at 
you know, just above freezing. Give it to me in, say, the high 40s, low 50s. Two quick comments to add on that. Uh, you, you made the point about how uh, American uh, light loggers, um, or as we call them, nails, North American industrial loggers, uh, are, are almost meant to be served cold because they don't have much flavor anyway. Uh, and I always think of uh, the late, great Fred Eckhart talking about uh, those North American industrial loggers saying, it takes a lot of skill to make a beer that flavorless. Uh, and and one other thing about frosted glasses is that the, the ice crystals on the inside of that glass provide nucleation points for the CO2 in the beer to come out of solution. And so your beer just goes flatter a lot faster when you use a frosted glass. So just say no to frosted glasses. If someone gives you one in a bar, just politely say, I would prefer this in a room temperature glass. And here's another reason not to use the frosted glasses, because I've run into this more than once, is, you know, most places when they do the frosted glasses, they'll run them through, like, you know, their sanitizer washer, and then take the glasses straight out of the sanitizer washer and basically throw them right into the fridge and start chilling them down. Who wants to take time? Here's a big problem. A lot of those sanitizer washers are using chlorine-based sanitizers, you know, to kill off everything, which is good. But when they put them straight into the fridge and they start to freeze over uh, super quick, some of the chlorine stays around. I've sent back more than one beer, not so much for the frosted glass, but for the chlorine that's leaked into the beer from the frosted glass. Frosted glass, bad. Mr. Dincenzo, next one's on you. Next myth we're going to tackle is, which is best, bottle versus draft versus can? Uh, and rather than play around and get cutesy, I'll just get right into my ranking. Uh, I would say draft and can are pretty much equal, given that your uh, pub has kept their draft lines clean. Uh, I guess if you want to take that as not necessarily a given, the order would be can first, draft second, bottle third. Why do I say that? Well, there was a lot of resistance to uh, canned beer 20 years ago when I was starting to brew because everybody related it to all the uh, macro lagers, the nails out there, and thought that only crappy beer came in cans. But then an amazing thing happened. People realized that the three enemies of beer quality are light, exposure to oxygen, and heat. Now, obviously, uh, the form of packaging can't do a whole lot about heat unless you put it in, uh, like, you know, foam-covered containers that uh, will insulate it. But in terms of exposure to light and oxygen, cans are far better than bottles. Obviously, cans will shut out light completely. There's also no way for oxygen to infiltrate a can. A bottle, even if you're using oxygen-absorbing caps, and there's some debate about whether or not they actually work or not, but even if you were doing that and waxing the top of the bottle, you're still going to get some oxygen ingress after a while. As to draft, you know, what's, what is a keg other than a very large can, right? Uh, so if, you're, if your drinking establishment keeps their draft lines and taps as clean as they should, then draft could be the ultimate experience. Cans are a close second, bottles are third. That's my take on it. How about you? Oh, I agree. I mean, with a couple of caveats. One, draft beer is only going to be good as the draft lines. And I know a lot of places still aren't in the habit of cleaning their draft lines as much as they should be. 
I mean, to my mind, every line in a place should be cleaned every two weeks. But a lot of uh, publicans out there don't take the time and the effort because, uh, one, they got to take the line off service. Two, they're wasting beer because they have to pour the beer out of the lines. And also, some of them just don't plain have the time. So a lot of times, it falls to distributors. And a lot of distributors will do that only in exchange for you know carrying certain tap handles, which is mm, dodgy. To me, I love draft beer, but I really love draft beer when I know I'm going to have a quality experience with it. I know that one of my favorite places to go have a beer has sometimes had dodgy lines in the past to the point where some breweries have refused to let their beers be poured on their systems because they didn't want their first customer experience to be in those dodgy lines. Now, having said that, I love draft beer. Also, having acknowledged the fact that cans are really awesome, cans are also incredibly tricky for breweries to pull off. A lot of times, the first runs of cans that come out of breweries will have problems because bottling is, frankly, a more forgiving packaging technique than cans are. I've known breweries out there that had launched into cans, were super psyched and ready to seize that market, only to discover that their cans were going terrible incredibly quickly because they didn't quite have a line on how to do the, the packaging correct. So they actually had to go out and hire experts how to do it. Cans are great, but cans do have their difficulties. I prefer draft beer, but I'll tell you what, I prefer the cans and bottles sometimes to draft beer just because I know that the brewers had a better chance of controlling all the factors that go into it, except for maybe warm storage when it goes into distribution. Counterpoint, counterpoint. Sure. Uh, I don't I don't see that it's any easier to screw up filling cans than it is to screw up filling bottles. Can You can do both. I haven't had as many problems with uh, draft lines and pubs as you seem to have had. Uh, at least my experiences have been about 90% good. And I think that that may even be more true if you go to a, a brewery-owned pub. Uh, for instance, some of our, our local breweries around here have their, their own pubs. And I think that uh, in that case, they go to great pains to make sure that everything is going to be fine. So I'm, I'm not quite as skeptical of those as you are. So. There you go. There's my counterpoint. Fine. There you go. Counterpoint refused. <laughs> That's fine. You're allowed to do that. And then last one of our storing uh, myths that we have here for today is on the topic of celery, you know, aging your, your beer. Particularly, there seems to have been for years a myth that all beer should be aged, right? You know, all good beer should be aged. And I think that comes from a little bit from, you know, thinking about the wine world. Beer people have taken a lot from the wine world for good and for ill. The idea that all all this beer should be aged and aged beer is better and it shows our sophistication and maturity. Well, okay, first, no. And I think this is going away largely uh, thanks to the rise of the IPA and been accelerated by the rise of the hazy IPA. Man, we all know hop flavors fade and in those super juicy IPAs, the hop flavors fade super quickly. So you really don't want to age those. I mean, remember a couple of weeks back we had Sticky Hands on the podcast and their mm-hmm. cans basically said, you should have drunk this like two days ago. We know that it, particularly in the day, day and age of the IPA that aging is not a always a good thing. Now, aging works perfectly fine for anything that's got big alcohol or big, or big uh, sort of sour notes or big roast notes, I think. All of those age pretty well. That's the reason why like my barley wine that we talked about on the other episode on Hello Mother, Hello Father is designed to age because, boy, that's got a lot of alcohol behind it. And my last little piece about uh, cellaring that I will tell you, one, keep the beers at a consistent temperature. Actually have a cellar. If you have a cellar, use it or dedicate a fridge to it. The other one is I know there's a lot of back and forth on should you store beer on the side or upright. And some people say, oh, well, beers in regular cap beers need to go upright and beers with corks need to go sideways. I'm going to say no, 
all of them should go upright. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, you know, if you're storing a beer like that, it's going to be a beer that's bottle conditioned. So if you store it on the side, all the yeast is going to fall to the side of the bottle. And when you uh, get ready to pour the beer, you'll have to sit it upright for a couple of days anyway for the yeast to drop to the bottom. It's just pointless. There's no reason to store them on the side. And the other than that, yeah, I pretty much agree with you. And I just want to you know, the takeaway from this that I want everybody to realize is that we all know that in beer and brewing, there is almost never a one-size-fits-all rule. A beer will benefit from aging. It may not necessarily be the same beer as one that won't. So judge it on a case-by-case basis. So that's the last of the celery myths for now. Let's go on to lifestyle myths. Denny. Why don't you tackle that great college myth that I think every drinker knows? Beer before liquor or liquor before beer? Let me see. It's uh, the saying is what? Beer before liquor, never sicker. Liquor before beer, never fear. My take on it is just just don't mix them. (laughs) At least for me, that doesn't work. I, I know there are those of you out there who love your Boilermakers and stuff like that, but uh, in general, other than a small amount of liquor used as a flavoring in a beer, uh, I've never had a good experience mixing the two, so I don't think it makes any difference which order you do it in, you're still at risk. Yeah, and I would actually say here's the reason why I think there's something about the myth, and I don't think it has a damn thing to do with mixing together your various boozes and whatnot. I've done that plenty of times and been fine. I think it all comes down to the sheer quantity. And the reason why I think there's only even a glimmer of truth to beer before liquor never sicker is because think about how it is that you drink. At least for me, when I've gotten into trouble, it's when I've been hanging out with people for a good long time and we've been, you know, socially drinking pints of beer and then somebody, somebody goes and invites somebody like Jose Cuervo to the party and there's a shot. And inevitably you have a shot And the next thing that feels good, if you've already about three or four beers into the evening, well, you know, that first shot was pretty tasty. How about a second shot? And that's when the trouble starts. To me, that's that's the only shred of truth about beer before liquor. I think it's just that, you know, by the time that you get to the liquor, you're already kind of, you know, half in the bag, half drunk. At that point in time, a little voice in your head that uh, wakes up that I call the grog monster that says, you know, it sounds like a really good idea. Another drink is already active. Only now you've moved on to the hard stuff. And you're not paying as much attention. I think it's all comes down to the sheer quantity and not so much the order in which you do it. But I do think the order sometimes influences your behavior. Maybe so. Uh, Personally, I'll just avoid doing both at once. Sounds like a plan. Next up, it's time to tackle the beer belly. We're going to start with this because everybody says, oh, well, you know, beer has a lot of calories and beer, you know, beer gives you that beer belly. And I, of course, have a very personal connection to this uh, since we've talked about this before on the podcast. I'm just going to start with the first fact. It ain't the beer, dummy. It's the calories. (laughs) And it's the calories in multiple ways. Now, I know there are a lot of people out there who like to say, oh, well, you know, the thing is that it's not the calories in the beer. It's all the fatty food that you have with the beer. The average human male gets about 2,000 to 2,400 calories per day to play with. More when you're uh, younger, less when you're older. And inside that 2,000 calories, we have to fit in all of our nutrition needs. And beer and all alcohol, is calorically intense, but nutritionally deficient. So it doesn't do much to actually satiate your hunger and satiate your body's needs. You're adding a lot of calories into your diet without actually necessarily adding a lot of nutritive value, aside from the possible mental nutrition. That's part of it. It's empty calories. The other part of it, and this is where the pernicious part gets into into play, is consumption of ethanol 
causes your blood insulin levels to spike, which then causes your blood sugar levels to crash. And when your blood sugar levels crash, the part of your brain that's responsible for controlling your appetite and your hunger wakes up and goes, beer drinker needs food badly. And so naturally, you get hungry. That's where the whole munchies type thing comes into play. And let's face it, when you're out and you're having beers and you're looking around for food, you're not really going to find a lot of good-for-you type foods. You're not going to find a lot of kale green salads and, and smoothies. You're going to find a lot of french fries, nachos, buffalo wings, and double bacon cheeseburgers with extra mushrooms and cheese sauce. That just adds up to a double bad whammy. It's not the beer, dummy, but it is the beer. What you have to do, take a lesson from both uh, Danny and I, is exercises in moderation, uh, pay attention, and know exactly what the hell it is that you're doing. Like I always like to say is, if you're going to be a beer drinker, if you're going to be a, a booze drinker, and you want to stay reasonably healthy in terms of weight, you need to be on point with the rest of your diet. So that means you got a choice there, buddy. Do you want those Kennebec sea salt fries that have been double fried? Or do you want the pint of beer? <laughs> yeah, that's that's really, really true. Uh, and for, uh, for health reasons, I'm like... Uh really working on losing weight right now. I'm on a uh, four ounce of beer, three days a week limit on Saturdays. I actually let myself have two pints, but I'm also exercising every day. I'm on my treadmill for 30 to 45 minutes every single day. I've cut back on the amount of other foods that I eat uh, so that I can I can drink my four ounces of beer or two pints on Saturdays and balance out those empty calories uh, other ways. So it, it's, you know, just a question of being cognizant of what you're doing and realizing that beer will be adding calories without nutrition and maybe you need to uh, do something to balance that out. As I'm fond of saying, all things in moderation, including moderation, which means that this week at HomebrewCon, I'll be enjoying myself a little bit more than I normally would on my diet, but that's because this is a break just for a little bit because this is a, this is a long marathon, not a short sprint. Right. And I, and I will likely be doing the same. I'm sure that I will exceed my uh, four ounces a day limit for those few days, but I'm going to try and stay close to that. Uh, I'm going to try and taste beer and not drink beer. Uh, and uh, I know when I come home, I will be spending extra hours on the treadmill to make up for it. Hey, we have a good gym in our hotel. You can spend hours on the treadmill there. Yeah, we'll see if I can find time. On to the history myths, which is one of my favorite topics in the world. I'm going to kick all this uh, segment off with a little bit of a warning. This is the same warning I give every time I give a style talk or a beer talk to a lot of people. You have to remember that almost all of the good beer stories that we know are fake news. They are stories told by beer drinkers to other beer drinkers or by brewers and beer marketeers to beer drinkers. So that there can be a sense of noble tradition, pride, or just plain trivia behind the various beer things that we drink. Sometimes there, there are hints of truth to it. You know, we, we talk about things like, you know, the porter and the three threads thing, uh, IPA being shipped around the world. And one of my favorite stories about IPA is the whole shipwreck in the Thames and, and barrels of beer being whisked away by wharf rats who then auctioned the beer off into the market. And suddenly everybody went, why, why are we shipping this to India? We should have that here. For years, that was sort of a lambasted as a fake story. But as it turns out, Martin Cornell, who's one of the guys who has done a lot to clarify the history of IPA, found actually the kernel of truth behind the whole story with a shipwreck that happened in Liverpool. 
Uh, however, by that point in time, I think IPA had already, I think he said that IPA had already been sold in the UK for like 20, 25 years, but it makes a damn good story. <laughs> yeah, it does really. Uh, that's interesting, man. Uh, so IPA had already been sold for 25 years by the time it was uh, discovered, huh? I think it was called pale ale. The, when IPA actually became a term is, is its own weird uh, conundrum. Oh, yeah, right. It was there. So uh, the other one that uh, that always gets both of us is uh, that European beers are ancient. You know, they've been around since the beginning of time in the beer world. And while that may be true for a couple things, uh, it is not universally true. It's, I guess that's a trend we're seeing over and over here. Uh, and just two quick examples. Uh, triple, for instance, was invented in the 1930s as a response to the popularity of Pilsner. At that time, the Belgians had no light-colored beers to sell, and they were really uh, concerned about Pilsner uh, just overwhelming their market. Uh, so they came up with the idea of triple as their version of a light-colored beer. And the other one that I like is uh, beer de garde, which you know certainly gives the impression of being something that has been around forever. In fact, it was invented in the 1950s as a way to market French beer. It's like, oh, hey, look, we have this special beer here called beer de garde, and it's like not like any other beer. So that's why when you go out and if you try and buy a beer de garde, a commercial version, you're going to find a huge variation. Some of them are going to be clean and malty, and some of them are going to be funky, uh, you know, and that's because beer de garde is not a style that evolved uh, through repeated brewing of the same thing. Beer de garde was just the name of a beer made in France that got it sold. Yeah, and I'll add to that. The other one I love is that you'll see a lot of European breweries talk about, we've been a brewery here since you know 1045 or some ridiculously old age that makes Americans feel jealous. And I will say that, I mean, a lot of times if you go dig into the history of that, you'll find out that in 1045, somebody founded a brewery on that particular site, and then in 1046, it burned down to the ground, and the brewery was rebuilt in 1900. Got to be a little careful about some of that. They, they do love to rub their history into, into everybody's face, and sometimes it's a little deceptive. And the other one that I think is really great is, uh, shall we talk about Bach? Let's let's talk about Bach because that is one of my all-time favorite myths. Uh, it's one of those things that if you know absolutely nothing about beer, you could fall for the idea that scraping the bottom of the tanks, and I assume that people are referring to fermenters, uh, would give you a really thick, heavy beer. But if you know anything whatsoever about beer and brewing, you also know that the idea of cleaning your fermenter only once a year and having a layer of thick, rich beer stuck to the bottom of it is total BS. <laughs> it's uh, my, my introduction to Bach was uh, in about 1970 or 71. I had just started college. There was a bar near the campus that every spring sold Miller Bach. And a friend of mine had been there before and he took me over. Said, oh, this is a rich, thick, really strong beer. And of course, the person serving us went through the whole story about, you know, scraping the tanks and this is what comes off the bottom. And at that point, knowing absolutely nothing about beer, I fell for it. All I knew is that it tasted great, it was sweet, it didn't taste like beer, and it packed a real punch. I mean, how do you suppose those kinds of stories come about, man? Oh, okay. So this is where I think it comes from, because I heard the exact same story from my mom. 
And again, you have the whole idea is, oh, in springtime, they scrape the tanks and that's where you get the Bach beer from because it's so thick and, and strong. Keep in mind, American Bach beer was like five and a half percent. I think here's, here's where it comes from. Bach has always had sort of a springtime uh, association. And when in the 1880s, 1890s, the U.S. Brewers Association, uh, which was a organization of all of the big breweries that were popping up around the country that had been founded by German and Austrian brewers, they wanted to have some seasonality to their beers. Uh, one, to anybody who's a craft beer fan, this should sound familiar. And also a little bit of, I know they were doing it because they were a little bit jealous of, of some of the wine stuff that was going on. One of the things that the U.S. Brewers Association decided to do was, American brewers, let's embrace the Bach tradition. And so every spring, they would roll out Bach beer. And it was supposed to be a, a, a celebration of spring, and it was a seasonal thing, and it was an event. Right? It made everybody pay attention to the product that was coming out of the brewery. So what I think this myth comes from is a conflation of springtime and Bach and spring cleaning. So because the beer is darker and stronger and people think sludgier and it's happening in the spring and spring is when we clean, then you get this whole thing of, oh, this must be what happens when they go and clean the tanks. And so that myth sort of feeds back in on itself. I'm not kidding. My mom told me this when I was a kid. And I believed it until I started to learn how beer was being made. And I know my grandfather would go out in the spring when the breweries released their Bach beers, buy cases of it, and go store them down in his cellar so they'd have the Bach beer all through the all through the year. That's where I think it comes from. I think it's a mashup of spring cleaning and springtime special beer. Okay. I'll, I'll buy that, man. You know, it makes as much sense as anything else. But we all know it's not true. So, again, correct your friends gently and with good humor. And the last one falls right into your bailiwick. Go for it. Yeah, so the last one is the whole romantic legend of Cezanne. If you stop and you think, you know the story. Cezanne uh, was brewed in the winter for by farmhands who were, you know, laying fallow as the fields were empty and needed work. And, well, also that was the time of year that you could brew. And they would make beer out of whatever they had on hand on the farm so that during spring and summer, while everybody's hot and thirsty and out in the fields doing actual work, they'd be able to have something to keep them hydrated that was safer than water. Well, all right, I'm not going to discount the idea that there was farmhouse brewing going on because there clearly was farmhouse brewing, but the whole farmhouse and Cezanne thing and the whole thing of what we think of Cezanne seems to be not a thing. And by that, what I mean is that you can look through the records and Randy Mosher's dug through a bunch of Belgian and French brewing records and found that one, there was no real use of the word Cezanne as a beer style commonly up until about the 1920s when we start to see Brasserie Pont. Even then, before then, the word Cezanne was only really applied, at least in the records, it seems like, to a special strong beer brewed with a lot of oats, kind of like a Dutch quoit in the town of Liège during the season, and it was a double-strength beer, and that's that was called Cezanne, but that was one very particular thing. So this whole Cezanne farmhouse thing seems to be not the picture that we have. And in fact, if you look at the breweries that were popping up that for these different villages that would be making this sort of thing, they were village breweries. They might be attached to a farm like uh, Duponce's, but they were still pretty much in the heart of the brewery. So they were more like communal breweries, like what you'd see in Germany and whatnot. The town breweries were doing the the beer brewing. So it wasn't so much like this romantic notion that we have of farm-based breweries, which kind of is a little sad, but whatever, we have the story and the story is a good story. And we can still tell beer stories and make beers based on the beer story. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, to me, it's like, 
one of those things that seems plausible until you start looking into it, and then you go, "This is this is just a made up story." There's never a problem with a made up story. The only problem with a made up story is when you let it dictate the truth. Yeah, that's right. I agree completely. If if that's something that gives you a great feeling when you're brewing your saison to feel like uh, you're in kinship with those people, go for it. It's a lot of fun. Well, and I think that's it, unless you have something else to add. I think I've said more than enough. Good. All right. So thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of beer myths. Did we miss a myth? Do you disagree with one of our statements about a myth? Uh, are there other myths that you want us to cover? So just remember that if you have those sorts of ideas or other show ideas like styles, brewers, techniques, uh, ingredients, and etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can leave us a voicemail at 626 ale 626-765-1AL. 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 You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram as Experimental Brewing, on Facebook as Experimental Brewing. I'm on Reddit, Denny is on the HA forum, and just about every other homebrew forum known to mankind, and some only known to alien life forms. That's right. <laughs> now, don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in iTunes, click on the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more for our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... Still the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society. This is really coming up on the end of it, and we're trying to raise over $1,000 to give to the pooches. So, hey, if you have a buck or two, consider donating. If you have an idea for our next charitable cause, drop us a line. We podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Give us an idea. We have a couple of suggestions out there, but we want to know where do you think that we should send some good charity to. Until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or brew experimentally. And we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. The brew is out there. <laughs>